This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portsdale. My name is Andrew Carroll. This is another entry in the Redux edition of our podcast where we will be posting bonus non-character actor content for anyone subscribed to HPM+. And for this episode, we're continuing our Leading Legends series in which episodes see us select an A-list star and each recommend one movie in which they appear and that people should check out and watch. I picked Denzel last, so it was your turn to pick and you chose Jodie Foster. Yep. Do you uh, have a little bio there? I do, yep. Jodie Foster was born in 1962 in Los Angeles. Her breakthrough came with Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, wherein she played a child prostitute, earning herself a Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination. She won her first Oscar in 1988 for playing a rape victim in The Accused, and her second for 1992's award sweeper, The Silence of the Lambs. Foster has done some of her best work in thrillers like Panic Room, Flight Plan, and Inside Man. She is also a director and has directed films such as The Beaver and Money Monster, as well as episodes of Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, and Black Mirror. In 2021, she appeared in The Mauritanian, for which she won a third Golden Globe. And I didn't research what the other two Golden Globes were for, so you just have to deal with that. Look it up yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, you a fan of Jodie Foster? You must be. I'm a big fan of Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm pro- I, li- I like... Um, um, panic Room. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think um, I ha- actually haven't seen her in all that much, um, but I think ba- based on those two performances alone, I'm like, oh yeah, I just want to see this four foot nine woman punch a man in the face. Sure. Yeah. And I think like Denzel Washington, who we spoke about last week, she's kind of the last one of the last stars who makes entertaining movies purely for adults. Absolutely. Uh, like yeah. Since 2000, she started Panic Room, Flight Plan, Inside Man, The Brave One, Hotel Artemis, The Martinian, which I still yet to see. I'd love to. Um, but the rest is a pretty watchable list of movies. And I find that there's something inherent in her. I think maybe it's her warm smile or kind of husky voice or maybe because she's been a star since she was a child. Or maybe it's because she has a different look to a lot of actresses with her more kind of athletic figure. Where in most of her movies, even Inside Man, where she's like not the he- hero, I, I can't take my eyes off her for some mm. reason. And I always like her. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I also think she just reads on camera as being very passionate and intelligent and possessing this sort of toughness or tenacity, yeah. which makes her great for playing um, these underdogs trying to make it in specialized careers which mm. are dominated by men. Which Hello, is what, Clarice. Which is what Contact and Sansa Lam share, which we're going to talk about. So yep. do you want to chat about Sansa Lam? Sure. So Jodie Foster plays Clarice Starling, a trainee FBI agent who is tasked by director Jack Crawford, played by Scott Glenn, with getting the aid of serial killer Hannibal Lecter, played by the Oscar-winning Anthony Hopkins, in the hunt for Skinner killer Buffalo Bill, who's played by a wonderfully creepy Ted Levine. What is your worst memory of childhood? Death of my father. Tell me about it and don't lie or I'll know. He was a town marshal and one night he surprised two burglars coming out of the back of a drugstore. They shot him. Was he killed outright? No, he was very strong. He lasted more than a month. My mother died when I was very young, so my father had become the whole world to me. And when he left me, I had nothing. I was 10 years old. You're very frank, Clarice. I think it would be quite something to know you in private life. Quid pro quo, Doctor. 
I wrote my notes down for this, just for any listeners, uh, so this may seem a bit scattered, just because I generally just write them as I'm watching something or thinking about it, and it, I'll jump from, synapses will just fire and I'll jump from point to point at random, but uh, hopefully it'll all make sense. It's like beat poetry. Very much so. It's not like that at all, but thank you for the comparison, Stephen. So, yeah, I think this is a film that benefits from like both big picture analysis and by examining like every little facet of it, from performances to blocking to lighting, and uh, like... On Foster, she's like the beating heart of this film, which from the start sets her up as like this confident, take no shit agent in training and then slowly reveals her as a very, very vulnerable, uncertain and traumatized young woman. And I think what's great about the the performance and the movie as a whole is that these two sides of Clarice exist together. There's never any switching between the two. You know, one can't one doesn't exist without the other. Like every human ever born, like Clarice Starling is like a walking contradiction. And uh, and that makes the character great and it makes the film great as well. Uh, I think while there have been thrillers before and after Silence of the Lambs, I honestly believe Silence of the Lambs is like the best of its kind, specifically like the serial killer kind of thriller, you know. And like, sure, we're coming for the chills and the thrills, but we're staying because from the moment we see Clarice step into that elevator full of men twice her height to the moment Hannibal hangs up that phone and the credits roll, we care and we haven't stopped caring for nearly 30 years. That's legacy. That's cinema. And, that's um, history right there don't you yeah understand? that's history <laughs> <laughs> you understand and I, get, I consider myself a pretty thick skinned person when it comes to horror and all its trappings but I think The Silence of the Lambs along with a movie like The Exorcist or The Empty Man are films that never fail to leave me like feeling emotionally exhausted and it's not just like the Hitchcockian effect of all the characters like um, addressing the camera directly and not just in like the ones um where Jodie Foster is talking to Anthony Hopkins through the glass partition or the most famous ones but it'll just happen randomly sometimes like she'll be talking to Scott Glenn and it'll be her point of view as he talks directly at the camera and it's just so unsettling That's Jonathan Demme's big signature yeah. Too, right? yeah. as a director and yeah. author of his movies and it's it's not just that signature move it's the fact that every scene feels like loaded down suspense like I'm a big fan of films like um, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure or like Orson Welles' Touch of Evil where the world just has a rotten feeling to it as if all the food in the fridge is just out of date or every fir- surface is too damp or too dusty and nearly every character is like that bit scummier than they would be in another movie like Director Crawford you're like you're kind of you're kind of suspicious of him once um, Anthony Hopkins is like do you think he fantasizes about you sexually Clarice you're like oh now I don't trust Scott Glenn. And it's really hard to make me distrust Scott Glenn. Unless you watch The Keep, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't trust Scott Glenn as far as you could throw him, which isn't very far. Um, and it's just so unfair that a character like Clarice, who has already been through so much, has to live in this kind of world full of people either trying to like, who are either eager to see her fail or are trying to kill her or manipulate her. Uh, but that's what's compelling about the film yeah, is its world and our strong as steel, you know, female protagonist. And... It's not an especially violent film like a lot of serial killer thrillers are that would follow it, like Saw or um, uh, Seven, say. Uh, it's like, but it's still quite distressing nonetheless. And like, we never see violence. We rarely see violence like enacted on someone, and we only ever see really see its results or have it described to us in the barest details. Like, there's the crime scene photos, the photo Doctor Chilton um, shows Clarice, where he's like, "We managed to save her tongue." This is what they did. This is what he did to her, and her eyes just widen slightly as she looks at this photo that's never shown to us. And um, then there's the inmates, like multiple Migs, who like when he, as Clarice is leaving their first encounter, he just throws his semen in her hair. And then there's the autopsy scene where they have to rub like the little like 
the strong smelling cream under their noses uh, so that they're not made sick by the scent smell of the skinned rotting corpse in front of them and uh, that, uh, there's um, Lecter's murder of the two police officers where he cuts off your man's face and wears it yes um, <laughs> uh, and I think what cements the film's reputation as like this distressing disturbing uh, two hour marathon is Clarice's like recollection of her attempted rescue of a lamb that was destined for slaughter and it's like the monologue delivered in three parts over the course of the film directly to camera um, by Foster covering like the moment her father dies to her desperate rescue mission and it like really reveals the depth of her like trauma and vulnerability and like I, I think the 1992 best ask, best actor Oscar is kind of a tie between Hopkins and De Niro as Max Cady and Cape Fear I think you know Foster had her category sewn up from the get go yeah. like there's no one better and I think it's like the ultimate tragedy that Clarice is so utterly alone in the world that she has to confess her deepest uh, trauma to a psychopathic cannibal like she has friends, she has their two nerds in the Natural History Museum. Like, you ever go out for cheeseburgers, Agent Starling? Cassie Lemons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cassie Lemons as well from Candyman. Yeah, um, but that's about it, you know. And it's you just want to reach into the into the screen and hug her. She probably wouldn't like that though, you know. She's she's Clarice Starling. She can probably take it, you know, go out for a beer or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I um, do a rewatch for it. Um, as you mentioned in the Mads Mikkelsen episode when we talked about the TV show of Hannibal. Oh, yeah. Always a franchise I have time for. Mm, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Why do you think she didn't show up for Hannibal, the, the Ridley Scott one? Do we know that? Is because that movie's kind of weird and gross? <laughs> Maybe. I can't... I'm sure I read it somewhere, but uh, I'm just going to guess and say that she didn't like the script. Okay. Yeah, I feel like she's... I would say I feel like she's choosy, but then she was in Elysium, so you know maybe <laughs> maybe she's not that choosy. I have a feeling it might have been because she didn't like the book, because I believe in the book, and it doesn't happen in the Ridley Scott movies. Hannibal and her hook up. Yeah, that doesn't feel right, especially when you when Hannibal has that line, you know, and sticky fumblings in the back seats of cars with boys, but all you could think about was getting out, getting away, getting all the way to the FBI. Yeah, and after I mean, when he says that line, you're like, "Ooh, I don't know. I couldn't imagine sex with this man." <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about then contact. So in this movie, Foster plays Dr. Ellie Arroway, an astronomer who has been long interested in trying to make contact with extraterrestrial life. And this was a comes from a love that was fostered in her childhood by her father, Pepper David Morse, who died when she was nine years old and left her orphaned. And Jesus! After years of <laughs> sad, <laughs> yeah, this, the, the strings connecting these yeah. two films. After years being ridiculed for research and having to beg for funding, Ellie and her colleagues hear chatter originating from the vicinity of the star Vega and feel vindicated, but that's short-lived when others, including politicians, the military, religious leaders, and other scientists, try to take over her work. Meanwhile, when the messages received from space are decoded, the project takes on a whole new dimension and Ellie must prepare for a voyage into the unknown. I got one for you. What do you got? Occam's Razor. You've ever heard of it? Uh, Occam's Razor? It sounds like some slasher movie. No, Occam's Razor. It's a basic scientific principle. And it says, all things being equal, the simplest explanation tends to be the right one. Makes sense to me. All right. So what's more likely? Thank you. You're welcome. An all-powerful, mysterious god created the universe and then decided not to give any proof of his existence. Or that he simply doesn't exist at all. And that we created him so we wouldn't have to feel so small and alone. I don't know. I couldn't imagine living in a world where God didn't exist. You know? I wouldn't want to. How do you know you're not deluding yourself? I mean, for me, I'd I need proof. Proof? Did you love your father? 
Your dad, did you love him? Yes, very much. Prove it. This was director Robert Zemeckis's big blank check project after Ooh. Forrest Gump and was based on a novel by famed American astronomer Carl Sagan. It's this like two and a half hour big Hollywood sci-fi film, but aimed at adults and you know probing a variety of issues like theology versus science, how would aliens affect how we believe in God, how mankind would actually react if we made contact with aliens, you know, and also sexism in the workplace. Mm. And in some respects, in its sort of blend of kind of Kubrickian sci-fi, hard sci-fi, with a more Spielbergian sense of like emotion and wonder, it feels like a big forerunner to more recent movies like Interstellar or Arrival. And like Zemeckis directs the hell out of this. The movie begins with this gorgeous looking three minute sequence zooming through the universe, signaling where it's going to go. But then, you know, after that, immediately after it, it starts very small scale and personal before gradually sort of expanding out, adding more characters, plot and stakes, eventually leading to this climactic, eye popping special effects extravaganza. But uh, even before its finale, just through the movie's sort of skillful re-employing of real life footage into the movie. And apparently the White House was very annoyed because the movie (laughs) subtly edited real Bill Clinton speeches into the movie, making it seem like he was talking about extraterrestrial life, <laughs> uh, which is something Zemeckis did a lot with Forrest Gump. Okay, yeah. Sorry, Forrest Gump has all the, the montages of all the presidents yeah, meeting yeah. Gump. They weren't happy about that. <laughs> and, um, also, Zemeckis' use of music and montage and big sets and you know location shooting and choice of actors, because this is a murderer's row of character actors. David Morris, William Fickner, John Hurt, Tom Skerritt, Angela Bassett, James Woods. Like, you can tell just everyone <laughs> wanted to work with him. Mm. And just through all that, the movie makes people sitting in boardrooms and government meetings, breaking down alien messages, feel really exciting and conveys a real sense of realism to the audience of how excited but also terrified the rest of the world is about the discovery. And I should say, this movie feels weirdly pressing in its own way in that features John Hurd as an eccentric billionaire obsessed with space who feels essentially like Elon Musk crossed <laughs> with Jeff Bezos. Um, it shows in its own way how people take these massive global events like COVID-19 and interpret them to fit their own personal worldview. Like in the movie, uh, the first decipherable message that the aliens send is a swastika. <laughs> but, but it turns out that a speech of Hitler at the Olympic Games was the first signal strong enough to be transmitted to space and they're just bouncing it back. Uh, they don't know what it means. Okay. And suddenly you have neo-Nazis outside the Kennedy Space Center in Florida with signs saying Hitler lives. <laughs> like, uh, which is kind of great. <laughs> like, it's very yeah. interesting to think about. And um, I'm not saying it's great that the Nazis were there. <laughs> just say it's We should fa- clarify, yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Also, um, Matthew McConaughey appears in the movie as a, a Christian philosopher and spiritual advisor to the president. And he's asked on Larry King if he's anti-technology and he, he says he isn't. But um, he says the question he wants to ask is, is the world fundamentally better because of science and technology? And he says, we feel emptier, lonelier, more cut off from each other than any other point in human history. And this is 1997. And the movie is pre the major takeoff of the Internet and mm. is already asking that question, <laughs> which has only become more relevant. Yeah. And I think audiences and critics at the time didn't really know what to make of contact because it, it doesn't wrap up in a neat bow and it has big moments of ambiguity. And, you know, what it's asking is often more important than the answers. But it it got mixed to positive reviews and did decent at the box office, but I think it's gone on to be very loved and be seen as one of Hollywood's better sci-fi yeah. movies. And just in terms of Foster, she's incredible and plays a huge role in keeping the movie feeling engaging 
because the character of Ellie was inspired by Jill Tarter, uh, who's the head of Project Phoenix of the SETI Institute, which basically did the same job she does in the movie. Foster's character actually searched for extraterrestrial intelligence. And this Jill Tarter person, she will serve as consultant on the story so the movie could realistically portray the struggles of female scientists. And Foster met with her. And I think the movie is very sharp in depicting sexism in that it's not like the male characters in this movie hate women or, you know, sexually harass them. They're professional, like people like Tom Skerritt or Matthew McConaughey. But multiple times in the movie, Foster has done all the work and they show up and take the credit or will say, like, we'll handle it from here. Or, yeah. Trust me, you don't want to deal with this. I'm doing you a favor. And they're just making decisions on her behalf for yeah. her. And it, it's that awful male entitlement, you know, thinking they have the right to decide these things. And, like, in fact, the actually the only reason Foster ends up, spoilers, getting to embark on this voyage into the unknown is she finds a man this John Hurt character who is very scientifically minded and disregards her gender you know because he doesn't care he just appreciates her mind and I, I think Foster is perfectly cast as I think as we mentioned in the intro as you said Thomas Sands and Lambs I think there there is a sort of a, a strength to Foster that makes you believe she can persist mm, even when yeah. all the obstacles in her way and everyone else is telling her that she can't and there's this great interaction between her and Scarrett where Scarrett says I know you must think this is all unfair maybe that's an understatement I wish the world was a place where fair was the bottom line and the kind of idealism you show was rewarded not taking advantage of unfortunately we don't live in that world and Foster replies sort of ruefully funny I've always believed the world was what we make of it Ooh. and I think that worldview of Foster's character is all over her performance and not only do you believe she can succeed you know she's going to like, yeah, she feels that yeah. powerful and it's also playing a character who, on the face of it, is is very resolute in her beliefs that there is no God, that science and truth is what's important. But over the course of the movie, there's points where you can tell she's niggling doubts about these beliefs. But for a lot of the movie, they're so deep that she'd never admit them to herself. And there's this great scene where she's talking to McConaughey about uh, if you're going by Occam's razor, which is the scientific theory that the simplest explanation is most likely the right one, there is no God. Mm. And she says, I need proof. And he's like, did you love your father? And she's immediately, she's like... Yes. And you can tell just that question like shakes her, kind of rattles her. And he's like, prove it. And you can tell she doesn't have an answer. Mm. And that comes back in the end, ironically, where, spoilers, you know, Jodie Foster's character has experienced this incredible cosmic experience, but has no proof it ever happened. And there's this courtroom scene where she's trying to prove it was real and that she's not crazy and she's on the edge of tears. And it's this long monologue. And it's, it's really just her wrestling with that idea of needing proof to believe in something. And she's so shaken by not just by what's happened to her, but having her worldview rocked, I think. And managing to depict that internal wrestling in a way that's crystal clear to the audience, as well as being able to ground the movie science into logical debate so that we as a viewer can engage with it, not just intellectually, but emotionally, is uh, some feat, I yeah. think. And yeah. I think she does the latter throughout the movie, you know, grounding it, because there's a lot of like scientific mumbo jumbo throughout, but we always understand it just from Foster's expressive reactions to it, whether it's good or bad news. The moment where she hears the Hamian noise through her headphones for the first time, it's like a 10 or 5 minute sequence and she's, you know, calling her colleagues on the phone, there's a big rush to record in it. It's so exciting just because her enthusiasm alone. And then, at the end of the movie, spoilers, she's transported through this device the aliens gave instructions to give through multiple wormholes and it's this incredible sequence filled with all this uncanny imagery like her face and body in the room stretching it's wonderful to look at and there has been all these debates throughout the movie about whether they should send an atheist to meet the aliens if the majority of the population on earth is religious mm. but she eventually is the one chosen and she at one point in a moment of tranquility sort of gazes out at this like beautiful celestial event and she's just in sublime awe and she just says no words to describe it poetry 
they should have sent a poet. <laughs> it's, be- it's so beautiful. And all their struggles throughout the movie all feel worth it for that one moment. And that's the point of the movie where I weep. <laughs> and that's even before an alien representative takes the appearance of her father to make her feel more comfortable. And she has this moment where she thinks she's in heaven, that it's really him. And you can literally see the brief disappointment flash across her face when she realizes it's not true. And the alien in this really paternal David Morse type way is like, that's my scientist. We thought this might make things easier for you. <laughs> and uh, I hope I'm selling it because the movie is trippy and cool. You're selling it to me anyway. And emotional yeah. and intact. And our four subscribers. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great movie. People should yeah. go watch it. Um, brilliant. I can't wait. Yeah, it's a credible yeah. movie, I think. Um, yeah. Any, any other foster thoughts? I've never seen The Accused. I should get on that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. 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 Rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Email I know the facepod at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. Over to you, Stephen. You can find me at the Headstuff Film section, joe.ie. See you later soon, folks. Bye bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.